Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. On today's episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Ronald Copeland, the Senior Vice President and Chief Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity Officer at Kaiser Permanente. Dr. Copeland is a board-certified general surgeon. He joined Kaiser Permanente in 1988 after a six-year tour of duty in the United States Air Force Medical Corps. Prior to his current role, he served as President and Executive Medical Director of the Ohio Permanente Medical Group, and in 2016, Dr. Copeland was appointed to the board of the Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine. At this time in our nation's history, I really wanted to sit down with Dr. Copeland to unpack the importance of equity, diversity, and inclusion in the healthcare industry, discuss where we go from here, and what more we can do to make meaningful change. I learned so much from Dr. Copeland, and I'm excited for all of you to listen in to our conversation. I'm here today with Dr. Ronald Copeland, Senior Vice President and Chief Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity Officer of Kaiser Permanente. And we're here today to talk about equity, inclusion, and diversity, but really in the stage or the um, setting of what's going on in the nation right now. And Dr. Copeland, I'm actually going to start by quoting you, and this is from the 2017 National Diversity and Inclusion Conference with KP, and you opened up by saying, it's clear these are not normal times, and it's clear we have a duty and a responsibility to make a difference. All around us, we're seeing protests that are colliding with the most devastating pandemic in modern history. Over the past few months, our nation has been suffering from the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's taken almost 150 lives and has disproportionately affected communities of color. At the same time, we're also facing a crisis born of generations worth of pain, precipitated by the horrifying murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, and countless others. Across the country, millions are standing up to be heard, expressing deeply ingrained pain at the injustice that has been experienced for centuries. In fact, the recent protests are the largest movement in U.S. history, with 15 to 26 million people participating in protests over the death of George Floyd. The Women's March was roughly three to five million. Already this year, we've seen how Black people and so many people of color are dying at higher rates than whites due to COVID-19. The embedded societal barriers, including racism based into our systems and institutions, have put them at greater risk whether because of their jobs, their limited access to care, their lack of health insurance, differences in medical treatment, or the vulnerabilities of their homes. So that's the backdrop against which we're going to be talking about equity, inclusion, and diversity. But before we really dive into that together, I'd like people to know a little bit about you. And I'm going to start with, when did you understand that you wanted to be a physician? Uh, That was really towards the end of my sophomore year in college. around that uh, include my younger formative years, uh, a conversation I had with my father at the end of my freshman year, and then ex- an experience I had in Africa during my sophomore year. Uh, so in formative years, 
uh, it was very clear to me that I had this uh, fascination, uh, unquenchable curiosity regarding life science and biology, what made living things live uh, and have life. Uh, how do we work? Uh, how does our bodies work? How do animals' bodies work? How does the universe work? And so forth. Just have this fascination and curiosity with the whys and the hows. Uh, and, but it was primarily focused on biology and living things, how they live. So I was always collecting uh, insects and other living things, studying plants, whatever. I just had this, this uh, fascination. Uh, and <clears throat> when I went to uh, the fourth, when I was in fourth grade, uh, I also discovered I had a talent for art and drawing and painting. Um, just something that I felt fun and was another way of expressing myself. But others looked at some of my drawings and so forth and said, you have a lot of talent. You got to focus on developing that. So uh, one of my fourth grade art teacher, uh, who was uh, on a board at a, at a local art gallery, shared her perceptions of my potential talent and worthy of development and offered me a scholarship during the summer school, uh, months to go take classes and courses at the art gallery, which, which I did. Enjoyed it, had a lot of fun, got more insight about what's behind art and different ways of expressing yourself. Um, and when I then came back in the, and in the seventh grade, <clears throat> I began uh, working uh, during the summer months at a storefront uh, with a artist that happened to be an African-American artist. Uh, and so that was kind of a mentoring session with me. And it was designed to have give children and people in the community something to do in the summer months to come in and learn more about art, actually try some paintings and that type of thing. Uh, and so I, I did uh, several paintings during that summer uh, as part of that process, taking some of the lessons I learned, instructions, and incorporating that to my, my own view. Uh, and by the end of that summer, uh, I sold four of my paintings. That's awesome. That must have been such an, an encouragement for the young Ron. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I, everyone, you know, thought that was a, a great achievement for a 12-year-old. And so uh, I started saying, well, maybe art is my calling. Maybe that's where I should devote my time and attention. If, if all these people are saying I have talent and people are spending money on it, there must be something to the story. That's awesome. When I was in uh, ninth grade, when we did a lab one day dissecting frogs, that I'm sure everybody that's taken high school science has had that, that laboratory and that experience. But for me, that was a game changer. I just fell back in love with, with science again and went off to college, uh, to Dartmouth College as a biology major. Uh, just wasn't sure, wasn't sure what I was going to do with it, but I knew life science, either teaching it, doing research, studying it, in some form or fashion was going to be really important. To me. Well, and now that I heard your story about dissecting the frog, um, I think I've answered my next question, which is why surgery? So it's not quite the same as dissection, but you actually sounds like you enjoyed peering into the human body itself. The thing that appealed to me more about surgery than some of the other specialties uh, was that one, uh, uh, the artistic side of me uh, was prevalent. So I think that comfort uh, in that space uh, came back to appeal to me. So again, from a formational standpoint, a development standpoint, uh, something I cultivated in art for a totally different reason uh, and a fascination of life sciences uh, kind of came together. My father, I think, saw that in me as well. When I returned home from my freshman year, he said, have you uh, thought about uh, what you want to major in or what profession you want to be, uh, uh, you would like to go into? 
And I said, well, no, I haven't really figured it out yet. I said, I got plenty of time. I know I love biology and life science, but haven't figured out much beyond that. And he said, have you thought about being a doctor? And, and so my freshman mindset was, uh, absolutely not. I said, uh, I said, who wants to spend that much time in school? I said, I've got four years of college, then four years of medical school, then residency. Uh, I don't think that's going to uh, be my uh, my choice. But my father's words of wisdom that stuck with me then and even to this day was anything in life that's valuable uh, is going to take time. And as long as you're fortunate enough to be alive, uh, you, you, you only have time uh, to do the things that are meaningful. So that kind of resonated with me. I kind of internalized that. But when I went to Africa on a three-month independent project in my sophomore year, there, by chance, on a weekend, I got a chance to hang out with an African physician who had trained in England, had created a mobile clinic, and was going out to the farm areas to, to provide clinics and care and immunizations and so forth to the village people. And so I hung out with him for a weekend, and I saw there all of that come together, my desire for life science and applying it to make a difference for people. Uh, and then there was a social justice component to it as well. Because my parents uh, grew up in the segregated, racially segregated South in Atlanta, and that they were part of the migrations to the North uh, to escape Jim Crow uh, and uh, discrimination. And so I grew up in an environment of hearing lots of stories about uh, what it was like under those circumstances and these constructs of, of racism and oppression and so forth. I got to learn about those things early in my formative years through the stories of my mother and father about what they experienced. And then, of course, during my time in high school and going to college was during the civil rights movement, the height of the civil rights movement. So I got a chance to take what I learned from my parents and then see the manifestation of it and all the elements it took. So if I package all of that, uh, it should be very easy for people to see uh, how that's manifesting in my in my career choices, both as a decision to be a physician, then a surgeon, and then after 30 plus years as a surgeon. Uh, to transition and my focus into the equity, inclusion, and diversity space uh, in the healthcare arena to try and make a meaningful difference there. Absolutely. And thank you for that. And and so let's do transition into that space. So EID, this is a new term. We used to talk about um, diversity. Now, then it was inclusion and diversity. Now it's equity, inclusion, and diversity. Why? Do you have to have all three? Do you have to have all three? Yeah, I think I think what you want is equity. Uh, and I think to get to equity, you have to first embrace diversity and then you have to embrace inclusion. And, and then you have the opportunity to really achieve uh, equity. When I first uh, took this role uh, seven years ago, when I retired my surgical practice and medical career to move to the to our corporate office, uh, we Kaiser's Permanente was national diversity. That's what this function was from a corporate standpoint, strategic focus standpoint. Uh, shortly after I did my assessments and got acclimated and talked with a lot of our leaders and looked at a lot of the data about where we were on our evolutionary journey, uh, it was my recommendation that we reframe our strategy from just diversity to diversity and inclusion. And the main driver of that was recognizing that uh, diversity is self-evident uh, and always there. The issue is if you bring highly diverse people together or communities together in all the dimensions that diversity occurs, and yet people don't find an inclusive environment where they feel a sense of belonging uh, for a shared uh, 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 mission and values, 
uh, and an aspiration to leverage the great diversity of thought and experience uh, that diverse teams bring as it relates to complex problem solving and innovation, uh, then you don't optimize. In fact, you, you get chaos because of the breakdowns in communication and trust and so forth. So I learned very quickly in this space that inclusion and diversity have to operate together. If you want all the benefits of diversity, you have to work hard to create truly inclusive behavior. Uh, and of course, that's not easy to do uh, in any large setting because of implicit bias and other detractors that can make it hard for people to actually get to inclusion. But if you can pull it off, if you can truly create an inclusive, sustainable, inclusive environment uh, where people have this sense of belonging and value being honestly valued uh, and uh, and being able to be their authentic selves and, and take pride in their diverse uh, thought, appearance, lived experiences and share those collectively. Then the, the remaining issue as, as a result of the realities of disparities that we know exist for a lot of historical reasons is uh, the desire to say people I value, people I trust, people I care about, and it's mutually returned. Uh, we want fairness uh, and opportunity and availability and access to resources. And so when we have compelling evidence that that's not the case, uh, we're motivated to want to do something about that in a positive way. And that's really what the equity journey is about, whether you're talking about a local scenario, a corporate environment, or the country. Tell me how equity is different than equality. Well, equality is uh, how we value each other and what we want uh, everyone to have as outcomes. So the way we talk about that in the, as relates to healthcare is we want everyone to have an equal opportunity for optimizing their health, being the best that they can be. That to achieve equality from that standpoint in terms of how do you distribute opportunity and resource, if you assume everybody is as on a level playing field and you're going to distribute opportunity and resources, then you say we all get the same opportunities and we all get the same resources because we're all on level level footing. But when you start the journey in that quest when you know and have very clear evidence in so many dimensions that people are far from starting uh, on a level playing field for all kinds of historical and systemic reasons, then equity is saying to get to that equality uh, vision that everyone uh, likes to talk about and promote, you have to give people based on give people opportunity and resource based on their needs uh, and where they're starting the journey rather than assume that everyone is on equal footing and we all get the same. So it's like medicine and other things. You can't cookie cut it because people are unique and their lived experiences and their challenges and some of the barriers that each person may face are different. So customization, which we all understand in other contexts, is an important part of this. And so what equity really is about is uh, tailoring uh, resources and opportunities uh, from a fairness standpoint based on where people are so that they have an opportunity to get to equal opportunities, equal success, uh, and in the case of healthcare, enjoy the optimal st status of their health. You, you mentioned implicit bias a moment ago, um, also I think known as unconscious bias. And I know that you did a lot of work around that. Can you talk about how that shows up in healthcare? Well, sure. Uh, well, the, the journey of, of, of implicit bias in the healthcare profession and, and health system industry, uh, the first iteration of it was really around denial. Uh, because when we talked about uh, implicit bias influencing people's decisions, their recommendations, 
uh, or their attitudes toward how they express themselves and communicate or not with other patients uh, as relates to doctors and nurses and clinicians with patients. Uh, when, when implicit bias was first brought into the conversation, the reaction was very negative because people uh, interpreted that as, oh, are you saying I'm a racist? And, and it's not my intention. So that couldn't be the case. But once people became uh, exposed to understanding what implicit bias is, how it is measured, how it is defined from a scientific standpoint, that it is implicit and that it's not in our conscious mind. It is based on a bunch of, of, of stereotypes uh, and images and preferences that we have uh, cultivated subconsciously over our career or lifetime. Uh, and it's really resides in a part of our brain that is remnant of our threat management mechanism. So when certain views, images, uh, stereotypes about groups of people uh, are, are, are presented to you, that part of the brain can signal that as a threat. Uh, and as a result, you actually feel true anxiety. And then if you're not aware of that and have a way, a trained and, and a learned way of overriding that and mitigating that, your decision making can be impacted based on fear, based on anxiety, without you having any conscious awareness of it. So, of course, when someone says that's how they're experiencing your decisions, it's hard for you to believe that that's the case because it was never in your conscious mind. But when you can look at a pattern of decisions and show people their own data, uh, as we as we did with physicians, to say when you treat physicians uh, with these attributes, when you treat patients with these attributes. We notice this pattern of recommendations and outcomes. When when it's a different set of attributes, we see something very different. Uh, and most physicians would say that can't be the case with me because I, the the the, re, the re, recurring refrain is I treat all my patients the same. And I understand that what they're saying is that my intention is to treat everyone the same from a fairness standpoint. But in fact, uh, you can't treat everyone the same, and you don't treat everyone the same. And your data shows that's the case. So that's where, that's where the aha came in. And when physicians have compelling evidence, database people and thinkers, when they have data that says, uh, that their intentions are not manifesting in what's really happening, uh, they do care about their patients and they want the best for their patients. And so that was the opportunity to say, we need to go on a learning journey to understand this phenomenon, how it impacts us and how do we mitigate it. And so we went through that evolution, kind of that learning cycle. And even today, uh, while lots of people have had training and exposure to implicit bias and so on, uh, what we're trying to do now is really build a system, a culture, and, and uh, a uh, scalable approach where this becomes normalized and the habits of mitigation and the language to express it one colleague to another, it becomes part of the day-to-day fabric of our organization. So that's a big learning journey, a lot of time, a lot of resource for a largely centralized organization like ours. Uh, but it's a journey that uh, I've been able, fortunately, to get uh, su- successful support from all of our leaders, physician and non-physician, and the resources to put that kind of development program in place. And we're launching that now, and we'll expand that over the next two years. And I imagine it makes such a difference for physicians to be hearing this from a physician, um, that there is a degree of respect and credibility that you bring to it um, from that standpoint. And then you did such a nice job of really separating out kind of the emotion of feeling like I'm not that guy um, and providing data. Um, Physicians are really notorious about wanting data and really working toward outcomes. And so speaking their language around this and 
And you might still not be changing hearts and minds or implicit bias. And yet it doesn't matter, right, if everyone is getting the same care and having the outcomes that they deserve, no matter what the bias is of the physician that's treating them. Another way um, that I've seen people really exercise um, equity, inclusion, and diversity is around their corporate spend. And I know that there is something that's important to KP around impact spending. Um, can you talk about that and how you choose to spend your money with some of these partners in the community and, and, and quite frankly, um, some of the buy that helps us do our job? Sure. Well, I think there's two aspects to the impact spending. One is uh, we want to make sure that our, this is where diversity and inclusion comes into play because we want to make sure that in the communities that we serve across the country, that we recognize that small businesses are economic engines in communities all across the country. Uh, but when you look at who are the folks in most communities who own small businesses and are trying to gain access to capital uh, and to providing services so they can grow, and as a result of growing, they can hire more people, they can provide health benefits to those people as employees, and they can make further sustainable investments in the communities in which they live and work. Uh, so that's a virtuous cycle that we think is very powerful. But again, when we look at the data to see what the current playing field looks like, uh, we find, a, a, unfortunately, a recurring story of women and minority-owned small businesses, uh, particularly people of color, disproportionately not getting their access to uh, contracts and capital, either for development or for services. And so being intentional in that space with our impact spending uh, and our supplier diversity programs has really been to be intentional and planful and reaching out uh, to uh, women and minority-owned small businesses uh, to make sure that they, first of all, are certified so that they have access to contracts and that as we do big projects at Kaiser Permanente, that we uh, make sure that a certain portion of our spend in those spaces are to those small business owners. And if they're not large enough in their capability and scale to manage a big project on their own, that at a minimum, they are subcontracting and getting access to uh, capital that will allow them to grow and expand and hire more people and do that on a regular basis. So that's another expression of something that we believe in as our values that, again, informs the way we do our business. Absolutely. We're in the middle of so much right now, and it's exhausting. And one of the phrases that's come up is also around this work, um, diversity fatigue. Do you have any comments about what that's about and also what we might do to counter it? Yeah, I think it's the human nature is anytime you're, you have goals that you want to achieve, uh, and the opportunities to do that successfully, uh, are constantly, uh, denied, uh, and that the, uh, ability to do it in a fair way, uh, is denied, uh, that gets emotionally and psychologically uh, very, very defeating uh, and physically and psychologically um, um, disarming. To, to, to not feel like you're valued um, and to always have to push uphill uh, and to deal with the continuing disappointment of not reaching your goals, not because you're not qualified or capable, but because opportunity continually is denied. Uh, and then to see and experience uh, for yourself or equally important for others uh, in your community and your families uh, suffer the consequences of all that. 
Um, and, and, and that is recurring over and over again from generation to generation. Uh, that's a lot to ask of any, any person, any, any community. And so I think the, the, the burnout and frustration is in part that, and it is the recurring trauma, uh, that is part of this journey and that some are just beginning to understand and recognize. We recognize uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome predominantly for our military uh, veterans and personnel coming back from, from very uh, devastating environments that they've been locked in and unable to escape, and, and, and that has caused tremendous psychological trauma that they try to recover from. And we know about the ACEs work that, that was done, and Kaiser Permanente did some of the leading research in that space to help people appreciate that even though these certain forms of trauma occur in your formative years, the scars, the damage, the impact as it relates to your health and the, your projected quality of life and longevity can be devastated years downstream because of things that happen at that early stage. And so if you think about that in, in an individual child, you can come to one set of conclusions. But if you think about that happening to communities of people uh, around the globe over and over and over again, uh, then that's another factor that drives the disparities we see uh, and when we look at populations and how they experience health. And so it's important uh, to recognize that when we look at COVID-19 and the disproportionate disparities we see in the African-American community and in the Latinx community and so forth, that none of these are based on a, a inherent or genetic deficiency in people's ability to achieve optimal health. It is based on recurring uh, circumstances that deny people the opportunity to prosper and grow and develop over and over and over again. And so the pre-existing conditions are based on that. And so when any other negative force comes along, uh, it's just compounding that on top of that uh, and the results get worse. And so we see that and it gets pointing out. But so often it becomes almost like a refrain of the, the underserved, the underrepresented, uh, the disparity groups and so on, that people uh, who are not experiencing that at a community level can very easily fall into a belief system where it's just something inherently wrong with those people, and that's why they always are on the receiving end of this. And it's another way of avoiding uh, and or refusing to take ownership of the systemic uh, discrimination and racism that many people have experienced, in some cases over 300-plus years in this country. So this current movement, the conversation, the, the focus, the anger, uh, all of those elements is, again, uh, the, 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 the community, the people uh, trying to make the case that reconciliation has to be part of a healing process. And if there is no reconciliation, then there's no healing. Uh, and so uh, if we're not all safe, then the question really on the table is, are any of us safe? As we think about the path forward, um, I want to share a quote by a woman. Her name is Michelle Lee, and she does a lot of work within, again, EID. And she says, long gone are the days of checking politics at the door. Political issues are employee issues. Political issues are company issues. Political issues are personal issues that impact all of us. With this recognition, leaders everywhere are being asked to take a more visible stance on critical issues impacting their workforce and consumers. And she really calls on people to be activist executives. Are you an activist executive? Well, I don't know what her definition of that is. I just know what I believe uh, and I, I know what kind of Permente's values and what we believe and why I've stayed here for 32 years of my professional career. 
is because of the alignment and, and what we believe uh, from a value standpoint, the mission of this organization, and a commitment to do that. And and at, and at the same time, we recognize that politics and power differentials are very critical in what gets done, what gets prioritized. So we're very mindful and aware that we have a voice in the health system uh, world. Uh, we are a recognized leader uh, based on our results and our size and scale and so on. So we are aware that our voice is important, and we try to leverage and use our voice to help people understand uh, how we see the world, what we value, and what good can be done with that approach. Uh, and uh, we're, we try to add our voice to every conversation, every discussion that's going on in this space. Uh, what we don't do as a not-for-profit organization is uh, take a political stand based on who's running for an office or things of that nature. But as it relates to social justice as a value and equitable care and understanding fairness and distribution of resources and so on, we're all over that. And uh, that's what we want for not just ourselves and not just for the people we serve directly as Kaiser members, but for the communities we serve. And that's in our mission statement, improving the health of our members and the communities we serve. So even if you're not a Kaiser Permanente member and you're in the geographic markets where our operations are, uh, we're going to be one of those organizations partnering with others to make positive contributions to the overall health status of that community uh, for the benefit of the community, not just for our members. Ron, are there any questions that you wish I would have asked you or any statements that you'd like to make that you haven't had a chance to? Well, I'll just say that uh, I think what healthcare has been slow to, to be on the uptake, given all of the focus on diversity and inclusion uh, over the years and more recently in equity, is really to formally recognize and make a statement as not just any particular company, but as, as folks who are dedicated to healing uh, and the oath we take to do no harm and therefore to permit and allow no harm uh, is that we are now recognizing and, and, and allowing our voices to, to be heard uh, that systemic racism and the implications and impact of it uh, is a determinant of health. And so while we've talked about housing and economics and so on, uh, we've been very slow as an industry to take up that uh, baton and say that is something we've got to call out. And if we now are describing and understanding it and appreciating that as a determinant of health, we have to address that in every formal and informal way we can, just as we're taking on housing, nutrition, exposure to violence, exposure to viruses and everything else. This hurts people's health and it hurts it in big and sustainable ways. And so uh, we have to step up to the plate, uh, even if we're not completely uh, aware yet on how we do that, but we've got to start that journey. So I'm proud of our organization and many others that are using this moment, if they're not already or have not already been engaged to call that out and say we are recommitting, reaffirming our commitment to that effort as well. And that's a new area of direction and accountability that we're intentionally taking up on behalf of our, our workforce and the people we serve every day. So I would want to make sure that people hear us loud and clear uh, that we're in that, we're among the group that wants to go forward in that space. Thank you. So this has been an amazing conversation and I've learned a lot from you. Thank you so much for your time. I'm going to close the same way I opened by quoting you. It's clear these are not normal times, and it's clear we have a duty and a responsibility to make a difference. 
Dr. Copeland, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I think it'll be um, really useful and helpful for our listeners as well. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. And uh, I hope it shed some light and uh, uh, create some opportunity for others to uh, learn what we've learned uh, and join the fight of what we're trying to achieve, which is equity and inclusion for all. Thank you. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Views podcast with me, Deb Friesen. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and we'll share another episode of Health Views with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals.